20 years, two decades, God's faithful work in this valley and through this church. That's really an amazing thing. This uh, past week, uh, Pastor Art and I were meeting with uh, Judy Astadurian, our director of children's ministries, and we were just talking about the state of children's ministries here at Foothill, and I can report to you that it is very healthy. There are uh, lots of uh, children, and, uh, and that's a good sign. A church needs lots of children. Uh, it, is, it is the hope of the future, lie with the young. But having lots of children means lots of children's workers are needed, and uh, many of you are involved in that ministry at one level or another. And, and uh, sort of here at the beginning of the summer, I just wanted to take a minute and thank you for your hard work. You bless uh, people, both the children and the uh, parents, uh, week in and week out by your faithful uh, service among the youngsters of the church. Carol and I worked in uh, children's ministries once uh, years and years ago. We actually taught a, a kindergarten Sunday school class. And um, uh, Carol actually taught the class. Uh, my job was uh, to, um, to enforce uh, classroom discipline. <laughs> and uh, I had to get out of it and get into adult ministries because I had this, uh, this elder's kid who uh, insisted on eating red crayons every week. And I, for the life of me, uh, boy, that little girl was fast. I'd turn my back for a second, and that red crayon would be in her mouth, and she'd crunch it up, and her, um, her parents would come pick her up at the end of, of a Sunday school, and her teeth would be all red with, you know, red crayon wax. And uh, we were kind of new to the church, and I thought, this is not a very good way to develop a reputation, uh, you know, a, an honorable reputation among the elders of the church, uh, but we, we laughed about it for years after that. And that, that rascal, she, uh, she grew up to be a beautiful young woman, married, has kids of her own, and, and I pray that they eat red crayons. And, uh, you know, so that she uh, understands what it's like. <laughs> you know, there's a story about a kindergarten teacher who uh, asked a boy what he was drawing one day in class, and, and he said, a picture of God. And the teacher responded to him, and, and she said, but, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the boy said, uh, after I'm finished drawing, they will. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's confidence, right? Indeed. So what is Jesus like? Have you ever thought about that? What is uh, Jesus like? How do you picture him? How do you picture him? And I, I don't mean in terms of, of his physical appearance, I mean in, in terms of his character, his personality, his behavior. How do you picture Jesus? Was he serious and, and reserved? Or was he outgoing and approachable? How much of the image that you have in your mind of Jesus has been shaped by your serious study of the Word of God? Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, we're moving on beginning this week, finishing chapter 10 and moving on into 11. And chapter 11 begins here, this is one of those places probably where we don't have the best of chapter breaks, 
chapter 11, verse 1 probably ought to, um, ought to have finished out chapter 10. It certainly completes the, the account there. Jesus in chapter 10, as you remember, had been giving instructions to his disciples to prepare them for a preaching ministry in Galilee. And chapter 10 is all about the instructions that he gave them prior to sending them out. And chapter 11, verse 1 says, when he had finished giving those instructions, so that's the, that's the end really of chapter 10, says he departed from there to preach in their cities. So Jesus sent them out while he himself focused his time and his energy in the cities on the northern end of the, of the Sea of Galilee, their cities, Capernaum and so forth, the cities where these disciples had uh, made their, where they resided, their homes. And it's interesting, I think, because Jesus, uh, Matthew rather, doesn't report on the, on the success of the preaching ministry of the twelve at all. In fact, he makes no mention of really what happened to them. His entire interest was on the preparation for them as they go. And then it it doesn't really suit his purpose, so he just begins to move on. And beginning here in chapter 11, the narrative changes for us. That's behind us. And now beginning in 11 and 12, there's a new focus that Matthew brings to his gospel account. And the focus that Matthew brings here, and it's important for us to to kind of keep in the back of our mind as we begin to study chapters 11 and 12 together, is the growing opposition to Messiah. And it begins here in chapter 11 with, with misunderstandings. So the early part of chapter 11 is about misunderstandings that are, that are in the hearts and minds of the, of, the, of the people of Israel. And I've entitled the message, Missing the Messiah. And that's indeed what they did. They, they missed their own Messiah. And so Matthew, remember, writes this gospel to really address one big question. He's written it to Jewish Christians, and, he, and he's writing it for them in order to help them understand and help them explain to their Jewish friends and family the answer to a very, very important and fundamental question. And the question is this, why, if Jesus is the Messiah, did Israel not believe? If he is truly Messiah, why is it that he came to his own and his own received him not? And Matthew wants to provide the answer to that question. And and chapters 11 and 12 actually begin to get at that answer. Prior to this, for the most part, Matthew has been building the case that he is the Messiah. Now he's going to begin to address the question of, okay, he is the Messiah, but, but why didn't you receive him? Why didn't you receive him? And the answer, uh, simply put, I won't leave you in suspense until we finish chapter 12. The answer, simply put, is this. He was not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. They had in their minds a a certain image of Messiah, a certain picture in their mind of of what the Messiah was supposed to be like and what he was to do. And Jesus did not fit their image. And because he did not fit their image, there was an incredible amount of misunderstanding associated with him, and that misunderstanding galvanized into opposition until finally... There, uh, before Pilate, they claim they have no king but Caesar alone. So here we go. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 2. 
Now, when John, and this is John the Baptist, now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, or works of Messiah, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the dead hear. The deaf hear, pardon me. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So we're going to begin this morning to take a look at this section. We're not going to finish it, and you probably knew that. But we will look at uh, verses 2 through 6 this morning, and, and the, the framework that sits over this entire section, verses 2 through 19, are really three questions. Three questions, and that's our outline for this whole section. Three questions that arise because of Israel's misunderstanding of Messiah. And the questions are, are simply these. Number one, is Jesus the one? That's verses 2 to 6. Is Jesus the one? The second question, and we'll take that up next time, is who is John? Who is John? That's verses 7 uh, and following, and then uh, beginning in verse 16, 7 through 15, and then beginning in verse 16, the final question, why were they rejected? So who is Jesus or, excuse me, is Jesus the one? Who is John? And why were they rejected? That's the, that's the basic outline of this section. Well, this morning, I want to just take up the first question, verses 2 to 6. 
is Jesus the one? Is he the one? Now, Matthew records this, uh, this question, and, and it's the question of the identity of Messiah. And interestingly, the, the question is in the mouth of John the Baptist. He is the one who voices this question. You see it there in verse 2. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Now, a little, little history. John is, at this time, in prison. He had been imprisoned by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, who uh, served Rome as the, the uh, tetrarch, and that's um, a tetrarch in the Roman uh, hierarchy is less than, a, less than a king, okay? More than a governor, less than a king. So he's the tetrarch, and he's actually the tetrarch of what's called of Galilee and the area known as Perea. Perea lies to the east and to the, kind of somewhat to the north of the Dead Sea. Uh, Herod the Great, who is the Herod of Matthew chapter 2, right? The one that, that issues the decree to kill all the children in Bethlehem was his father, he was the king of that entire area of Palestine. When he died, it, the, his, his kingdom was broken up and, and dispersed to his sons. This son, Herod Antipas, ruled the section of Galilee and Perea. And he had a long rule. He ruled from 4 B.C. all the way to AD 39. And he had imprisoned John the Baptist about a year before because, according to, um, to Matthew uh, 14, and I'll just turn you there quickly. You can see it over in, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in, in verse 4, Matthew 14. He had thrown John in prison because John had confronted him about Herod Antipas's unlawful marriage, where he had, um, and we'll get to it in a little more detail when we get to Matthew 14, but essentially he had married his uh, is a brother Philip's wife. And so John the Baptist confronts him with what is an immoral and unlawful under Jewish law marriage. And so he takes John and he throws him into prison. Now John had um, uh, his, the act of him being arrested and thrown into prison is actually the event that launches Jesus' Galilean ministry to begin with. It's chapter 4, verse 12, and I'm just giving you a little, little help here to get the chronology in your mind. Chapter 4, verse 12 of Matthew's Gospel, where it's reported, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and his great Galilean ministry begins. So it is the, it is the event is the imprisonment of John the Baptist. He is now sitting in prison, and he had been sitting in prison for um, probably over a year by this time. And he sends word, it says, back in chapter 11, by his disciples, after having heard about the works of, and notice uh, uh, Matthew makes it uh, not uncertain at all who he thinks Jesus is. Having heard about the works of Christ or the works of Messiah, he sends word, John does, by his disciples to ask a question. And his question uh, is interesting 
the construction of it in the, in the original language, the, the you is a very emphatic. It's in the emphatic position. It means it's first in the sentence so that the reader would understand how important uh, this question is. And we could, we could do it uh, you know, with sort of verbal emphasis. Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? John is, is uh, making it very clear that he is struggling. He is struggling to, with how to reconcile his understanding of who Messiah is, his previous understanding, with what he has heard about the ministry of Jesus. And he's confused. He's confused. Now, implied in his question here, are, are you the expected one? Or, or shall we look for someone else? Implied in that question is, is, that, is that maybe Jesus isn't Messiah, but, but maybe he, he fulfills some sort of role as a, as a front runner to Messiah in the way that John himself has been fulfilling it. So he's, he's confused. John is confused. Now the question is, a, I, I think, a bit of a shock. It's actually kind of a bit of a shock. And, and the reason it's a bit of a shock is because of the things we know about John the Baptist, right? I mean, of all the people to, to, to ask this kind of a question, this one seems sort of out of character. John the Baptist is the guy with the rock-solid faith, right? He's the one who can look, you know, Herod Antipas in the eyeball and, and uh, say, hey, you're, you know, you're a guilty sinner. And so uh, he's, a guy, he's, a, he's a guy who really appears to have it all together, and yet he's asking this question. Why? Why does he ask this kind of question? Well, there are all kinds of theories. Whenever there's anything in the, in the Bible that sort of um, kind of stands out from the ordinary, then you get a, you know, it's fun to read the commentaries. You get a million opinions about what it could mean. So let me share a few of them with you. Okay, here are some possible answers that people have postulated through the years as to why John the Baptist, at this point, is asking Jesus, are you really the Messiah or, or did I get it wrong, and is there somebody else? So here's one theory. One theory is that, that it is not John who is having the problems at all. The theory is, it goes something like this. It's John's disciples who really are having the question, the problem. And so Math, or, or, um, John the Baptist, in, in order to, to solidify the faith of his own disciples, mouths the question, puts it into their mouths, and sends them off to Jesus to get an answer. So it's not John who is doubting, but it's his disciples who are doubting. That's kind of how the, how the uh, theory goes. And this actually was quite popular in the early church. In the early church, they, they answered it this way. It wasn't John's doubt. It was his disciples' doubt, and, and uh, John just sent them off so they could get their faith confirmed. I don't think it works, and, and the reason I don't think it works is because if, if John is not doubting, then he could have done the same thing that Jesus does, and that's just point them to the Scriptures and resolve their doubt for them. So I don't think that's the answer. Other people say that, uh, that John was, was now just finally coming to an understanding of who Jesus really was as Messiah, and and he asked this question just to, to foreclose any possible misunderstanding so that he can now close out his, his uh, enterprise, as it were, and, and transfer his disciples to Jesus. That's how the theory goes. 
The problem with that is that it contradicts John chapter 1, where right after the baptism of of, uh, Jesus, where John baptizes him, John points to him and says, the Lamb of God, behold, who takes away the sin of the world, and he sends his disciples to follow after Jesus. So it doesn't seem uh, too likely, I don't think, that at this relative late stage that John is finally putting it together. So I don't think that one works. Here's another theory. Another theory goes like this. John has been in prison now for over a year. Now, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, he was imprisoned in the fortress called Machaerus, and that's located in the hill country on the northeastern end of the Dead Sea. And uh, the theory is that, that John is a man of the open air. He kind of grew up and he lived out in the wilderness, right? And so he's, he's used to the wide open spaces. He's used to being able to come and go as he chooses. And he has been confined for over a year into a kind of a dank uh, dungeon cell. And he's become incredibly depressed. And in this state of, of depression in which his spirit has kind of been broken, uh, he needs Jesus to, to revive his spirit. So he sends his disciples to ask this question. I think that's entirely bunk. Uh, I think that's a, that's a made-up psychological explanation that I don't think has any textual support at all, uh, not to mention the fact that if uh, John were severely depressed at a place where he's wondering whether Jesus is really the Messiah, then it would seem that Jesus' response to him was a little bit harsh, where at the end of, uh, in verse 6, where he actually rebukes him. So I don't think that one works either. I'll give you another one. Okay, we're just kind of thinking about this. Another one is that John's growing impatient. He's growing impatient. He's been the forerunner. He's been preaching. And uh, now he's been imprisoned. He's been imprisoned for more than a year. He's kind of tired of waiting. And he wants Jesus to get on with it. And Jesus seems to have been dilly-dallying throughout uh, Galilee, you know, sort of going here and there and, and, uh, and giving these long sermons and, and doing these miracles and things like that. And, and, uh, and so John wants the kingdom to come. So he, he asked this question to sort of uh, put Jesus into a, into a position where he, had, he kind of forced him to show his hand and to proclaim himself as Messiah. Hogwash. Okay, so that leaves the real answer. Okay, so here's the real answer, I think. I think the real answer is this. I think that John is puzzled. I think John is legitimately puzzled. And I think he's legitimately puzzled because of his failure to properly draw a full picture of who Messiah is from the Scriptures. He's he's got sort of a two-dimensional instead of three-dimensional picture of Messiah. What do we know about this guy? We know about John the Baptist that he was a a single-minded man. He was a very, very focused individual. There was nothing that pulled him off his one-track mind. He was a bold and fiery prophet of judgment. You see it back in chapter 3. I'll take you back there where we're first introduced to him. This is definitely not the kind of preaching that is, um, it wasn't popular in those days. It certainly would not be popular today. This would be like giving an altar call, and as uh, people are coming forward, you uh, say to them, 
Now, verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Drop down to verse 12. He's speaking of Messiah here. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now that's a sermon. That's a sermon. This is John. He's got like, you know, he's like a traveling evangelist. He's got one message. You deliver it and then you, you know, you get on your horse and move on. And his message is simply this. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and as everyone knew, preceding the kingdom of heaven is a time of terrible judgment. So he is a preacher of judgment. It's one thing we know about him. Secondly, we know again from Matthew 3 that, that John is hesitant to baptize Jesus. But Jesus uh, convinces him to, to go ahead and do that because Jesus is identifying himself with the nation. And so as the nation has been called to be baptized, Jesus follows through on baptism. And John witnesses the Spirit of God descending like a dove upon Jesus. But he has this hesitancy early on. We also know that John is an ascetic. An ascetic. That is somebody who severely treats their body. John lived on a very interesting diet, right? Bugs and honey. And in particular, it was locusts. John's a guy dressed in, a, in kind of a you know, a rough-hewn robe with a big, thick leather belt around his waist and locust legs hanging out between his teeth, you know, and, and, uh, and honey. And if you ran into that guy, that scared the daylights out of you, right? And, and, and that's the way he lived. And, and Jesus even says this, right? You know, what did you go out to see? Somebody dressed up in soft clothing? This guy's not in soft clothing. There is nothing soft about him. He is a very, very uh, hardened man. He's an ascetic. Beyond that, we know he practiced a very rigorous form of Judaism, fasting. Fasting was very, very important to John and his disciples. Back in chapter 9 and verse 14, the disciples of John, they came to Jesus and said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So John and his disciples practiced this very rigorous form of Judaism. So there was everything about him that was sort of, you know, really narrow, right down the middle kind of thing. And then there's Jesus. And Jesus just doesn't fit John's understanding of who Messiah is going to be. And so he's, he's puzzled by it. He's, he's having trouble putting the pieces together. His prophetic ministry was a very simple one. It was to call the nation to repentance and to warn them that judgment was coming uh, to precede the coming kingdom and they must repent or be consumed in the fires of judgment. That's his ministry. That's his message. 
but in, and, and he had been preaching it. But instead of judgment, the wicked still rule. Right? Herod Antipas is on the throne. Instead of judgment, the, the Messiah's prophet is in prison and has been sitting in prison for more than a year. And then there's Jesus. And Jesus has been, you know, sort of moving around the countryside, and, and he, he violates all kinds of religious taboos, as he does. You know, they're constantly after him, that he, he doesn't you know, go through the ceremonial cleansings and things like that. So he, he's violating all kinds of, of strict religious conscience, and, and John had a strict religious conscience. And, and, he, and he's, he's like feasting with all of these irreligious characters, Here's John, right? You know, we, we practice fasting and, and uh, you know, we're warning people about the judgment. And here's Jesus, and he's uh, coming over to people's houses for dinner. And the people that he has dinner with are the people that are, that are really the outcasts. They're, the, they're the, uh, the ones that should be repenting. And Jesus is having, you know, dinner with them. And, and he's teaching all the time, and, he, and he's doing all these kinds of healing miracles. And this just doesn't compute for John. It's not the image, not the picture of the Messiah that, that he has in his mind. It's not the way he thought the future was going to unfold. And so his faith has now begun to waver. It's begun to waver. So how does Jesus respond to him? How does Jesus respond to him? Does, does Jesus send John's disciples back and say, yeah, you know, I... I, I I kind of do some things that you probably don't understand, but be patient, you know, it'll come together. Don't worry about it. Not that at all. What he does is he sends them back and he says to them and to John, basically, go put your nose back in the scriptures. You don't know your Bible well enough. Your misconceptions, your misunderstandings are a result of your ignorance of the scriptures. Your ignorance of the scriptures. He says to them, verse 4, he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. And then he begins to spell these things out, right? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So he, he says to, to John, through, his, through John's disciples, Report back, this is what I am doing. But he, not just, he doesn't just send him back and say, give him a report about all the people I've healed. He gives him a theological framework to understand the report about what Jesus is doing. And, and that really is the most important thing to see here. He, Jesus gives to John the Baptist a theological framework in order to interpret the evidence. He says, remind him of the evidence, but John had already... John had already known about the evidence, right? In verse 2, he had heard about the works of Christ. What Jesus gives him in addition is the theological framework in order to interpret that work as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And you see that by the, by the uh, and I think your Bible probably does it this way, that it shows you that some of these things are drawn right out of the Old Testament. These are quotations out of certain passages of the Old Testament. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said, Go report to John what you hear, what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. This 
theological framework for interpreting the evidence takes you back into the Gospel of Isaiah. So let us, it's worth doing it. So turn to Isaiah 35. We're going to take Jesus' advice. It's not advice, it's a command. Jesus' command to John the Baptist, we're going to take it to heart. Now, Isaiah 35 is speaking about the future coming millennial kingdom, the future age, the age to come. When the the curse has been overturned, you see it in verse 1, the wilderness and the desert will be glad, the Arab will rejoice and blossom like the crocus and so forth. It's talking about a time when the curse will be overturned. That overturning of the curse occurs in Messiah's kingdom. But pick it up in verse 5. Then, that is in those days, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool, and on it goes. These are clear prophecies about that coming one and what his kingdom will be like. Chapter 61, verse 1 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61 And verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Messiah speaking. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Again, this is speaking about the future coming of Messiah's kingdom in which there will be a a proclamation of liberty to the poor and to the oppressed. And Jesus cites in particular these two passages and says, go back to John, tell him to open up Isaiah's gospel and to read about this and to read and to believe. Read and believe. Now there are other passages that we could add in I'll just mention them. I was going to turn you there, but we're running out of time. So you can mark these down. You can look at Isaiah 26 and verse 19. You can look at Isaiah 29 and, and verse 18. It speaks there about the, uh, the dead being raised up and, and so forth. And so the point of it all is that, is that Jesus is telling John, listen, if your faith is in trouble... If you're wavering, you're not sure of who I am because things aren't working out exactly the way you thought they were, then go back to the Word of God and be reminded of who I am. Be reminded of who I am. Jesus points John to his kingdom miracles. To his kingdom miracles. John, you've heard about what I've done. Let, me, let, my, let your disciples come back and give you a little more a few more stories about the things that I've done, the kinds of things I'm doing. Filter that through your theological grid of the Old Testament and be believing and not unbelieving as to who I am. Now, Matthew does the same thing for us, for the reader. As you're following through this gospel, chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's gospel recount for us the same miracles. 
We weren't there to see Jesus give the, the lame the ability to walk. We weren't there to see him heal the blind. We weren't there to see him to give hearing to the deaf. We weren't there to see him raise the dead. But actually, we have something more sure, Peter tells us, than even our eyewitness account of all of that, and that is we have the Word of God. And here in the Word of God, in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew provides just that. Matthew 9, verses 27 to 31, the blind are cured. Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 to 8, the lame are restored to walking. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, the lepers are cleansed. Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 and 33, the deaf receive their hearing. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26, the dead are raised up. And Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, in what we call the Beatitudes, the good news is preached to the poor. So all of this is readily available to you and I in the same way it was readily available to John the Baptist. And then Jesus says, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. This is a, this is a rebuke. It's a mild rebuke, but it is a rebuke. And essentially what it means is, is, John, you must bring your understanding and your faith in Messiah in line with the reality as revealed in the Word of God. We don't get to make up Jesus. We don't, we don't get to, to, to decide what he is like and, and what he will do. We are called to have faith in him as he is. And, and frequently, he does things that are very, very different than what we expect he would do. And sometimes we're even so um, bold and arrogant as to basically say, if I were him, I wouldn't do it that way. Which is kind of a dumb thing to say. But it's very easy when you have, a, when you have an image in your mind about what, what Messiah is like and how he, and how he acts and, and what he should do that when you're confronted with the reality of what he is doing, your faith begins to waver. And Jesus says, don't let that happen. Go back to the word of God. Go back to the word of God and be reminded of who I am and how I operate. Who is Jesus? That's the question. Who is Jesus? The answer, he is the Messiah, long promised of God long promised of God. Now, I think there are a few lessons that I'd like to just briefly talk about coming out of this section. And they uh, primarily have to do with miracles. There's some, uh, you know, we've been looking at miracles, and there's some things that I've been wanting to say for a long time and trying to figure out where to say them, and so here it is. All right, here it is. Now, this is a pretty, uh, pretty condensed statement about miracles. So here they are, sort of lessons to learn. First lesson is, is Jesus pointed John to the fulfillment of Scripture in order to answer his questions and remove his doubts. Yeah, that's the first lesson that I think you can legitimately walk away from this with. Jesus doesn't give John uh, any more evidence. He points him back to the Scriptures. Jesus had done a, a really amazing miracles. 
But these miracles are not sufficient to either create or sustain faith in the, in the face of adversity. So ultimately, Jesus has to point him back to the Word of God. Why? Why does he have to be pointed back to the Word of God? Why do I have to be pointed back to the Word of God? Why do you have to be pointed back to the Word of God? And here's the answer. Because miracles have to always be interpreted by the Word of God. Miracles have to be interpreted by the Word of God. Otherwise, they are meaningless. They are meaningless. Miracles are mute. They do not speak. There is no, there is no uh, lesson in a miracle. The lesson is in the Scripture. Now think with me on this. I know it's getting a little late, but hang on here. Okay? Facts do not speak for themselves. Okay? Facts do not speak for themselves. All facts are what the, the great apologist Cornelius Van Til said, are what's called interprefacts. Interprefacts. That means all facts have to be interpreted. They have to be interpreted to have any meaning at all. There is no such thing as just brute facts that are a witness to what everybody agrees. They have to be interpreted, and the interpretation, the correct interpretation, the only infallible interpretation of the facts is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. So, so here's how you apply this. On a somewhat regular basis, I, I, I hear people saying that such and such happened and it was from God. Such and such happened and it was from God. But, but the question is, is, how do you know it was from God? How do you know? The facts, I, I don't dispute the facts. I mean, all kinds of really interesting things happen, and I certainly don't have an explanation for it all. But how do you know that whatever happened to you or you heard happened to a friend of a friend of a friend is from God? How can you know? You can't trust your senses. You can't trust your senses. You must have an authority source that is infallible and authoritative and that comes thus coming from God that can interpret these experiences or facts for you in the Scriptures are what you have, the scriptures. So every experience of life needs to be passed through a, a scriptural grid in order for us to properly understand what it is that's going on in our lives. Now, beloved, this is increasingly critical because we are living in an age in which mysticism is on the rise. That is the idea that you can commune directly with God outside of his word. Furthermore, there is a significant increase in demonic spirituality in this country. The Eastern religions have poured in and have been accepted at, at a very wide level in this country. And so it is demon spirituality, and there is this increasing mysticism, this idea that I'll connect with God without going through the Scriptures. And it is so dangerous, so dangerous. We need, we need a source to interpret reality, and the source to interpret reality is the Word of God. John the Baptist needed a source to interpret what he had heard. Jesus points him to the Word of God. First lesson. Second. 
Second lesson is, when you compare the miracles of Jesus with the modern-day claims for the miraculous, it is pretty uh, apparent that the modern-day claims that are miraculous are shabby counterfeits. Shabby counterfeits. They do not reveal kingdom authority like Jesus. Listen, today's faith healers, and you know who I'm talking about. Today's faith healers, they work in controlled settings. They rely on uh, mind control techniques by which they, they draw in the gullible. And their healings, so-called, are, they resist any kind of independent, uh, unbiased medical verifications. They just will not allow that to happen. It's all in a very controlled setting, and they claim it to be the miraculous. Listen to me. Does God do miracles today? Yes. Yes, he does. But by definition, miracles are rare. Okay, just hang on to that. By definition, miracles are rare. If they're not rare, then they're not miraculous. Okay, so finding a parking spot at Walmart is not a miracle. (laughs) Oh, maybe it is. Okay, They they are rare. Secondly, miracles are given by God in order to verify the authority of the spokesman of God. As you read through the scriptures, you see these great periods of miracles. They are given to a to, uh, to authenticate these spokesmen of God during particular periods in redemptive history. They are not all over the Bible. They are concentrated. Finally, just as sort of an observation, when the miracles are done, as recorded here in the New Testament, they are, they are in the public, wide open, no controlled settings, and they are instantly understood and believed to be miracles by both believers and unbelievers alike. Nobody disputes what was done. It is clear and it is apparent. Listen, if Jesus' enemies could dispute that he did something, they would. They never disputed what he did. They only disputed the source of the power by which he did what he did. So they are right out in the open. And they are amazing, and they are, they are unexplainable. So here's a challenge for today's faith healers. If, if, you, if you have the power to heal, go down to Children's Hospital, walk through the wards, and start raising them from the beds. Start healing their bodies. But you will never see it happen. You'll never see it happen because there is no power there. They are frauds and they are charlatans and they are doing it for the money. They're doing it for the money. They are false teachers. They are false teachers. Listen, Jesus, according to Matthew, he went all over Galilee healing everybody. And the people flocked to him. Out in the open, wide open, no disputes. All right, third lesson. Third lesson on miracles. It goes like this. There are many today that are, that are saying that Christ came not to establish a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. 
that Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. But if that were true, this would have been exactly the right time for Jesus to have made that known. He, he could have spoken, he could have revealed that reality, if this were true, to John the Baptist. And in verse 7, he's speaking to the crowds. This is the, this is the perfect time. The question is about miracles. This is the time to say, hey, uh, John, the Bap- John, you got it all mixed up. You shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be thinking about Messiah doing all kinds of miracles. You, this is a spiritual kingdom. This is a spiritual kingdom. I want you to think with me this morning about miracles in relation to the kingdom. This is the third lesson. Miracles in relation to the kingdom. And to, and to do that, I'm, I want to give you just a, an excerpt from, I think, my opinion, of the greatest book ever written after the Bible. That's pretty high praise, huh? Okay, it's 600 pages. The print is small. There are no pictures. But if you could only read one book, I would give you this one to read. I would give you this one. It's called The Greatness of the Kingdom. There's a quote from this on page 302. I have it here for you. The author, Alvin McLean, writes the following. He says, two questions might be asked of those who insist upon the exclusively spiritual nature of our Lord's kingdom. If you are insisting that the kingdom of God is is a purely spiritual kingdom, then he's got two questions for you. Here they are. First, if the kingdom announced by the Lord was thus narrowly spiritual, then why all these physical miracles so great in both kind and number during the ministry of Christ on earth? You understand that question? If this is an exclusively spiritual kingdom, and Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is close at hand, and he's doing miracles all over the place, then McLean says, how, why, how do you reconcile that? Why do you do physical miracles if it's a spiritual kingdom? You've got to answer that question. He goes on. But, on the other hand, if such miracles properly belong to a spiritual kingdom, so if your answer is, well, because they're part of a spiritual kingdom, If that's true, if such miracles belong to a spiritual kingdom allegedly established at his first coming, why then are they not present today? If these kinds of miracles, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, if these are an essential part of a spiritual kingdom and Christ established the spiritual kingdom at his first coming, then how come there are no miracles like that today? What's the answer? The answer is, is because Jesus did not come to establish a, a, an exclusively spiritual kingdom. Okay, and there are a lot of people today in the church and there are a lot of New Testament scholars and Bible teachers who are hammering... Uh, I'm pounding this drum. And they're wrong. They are wrong. Listen. Messiah's kingdom is a physical kingdom entered through or accessed through a spiritual door. It is a physical kingdom that requires that the only access comes through the spiritual door. That is that one must be born again as Jesus tells 
Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It is a physical kingdom, but your entrance comes through the spiritual door. It is a kingdom that will be populated someday by the redeemed of all ages from Adam until the end of this age. Only people who have repented of their sin and trusted for their salvation in God's promised one. The one who came, was crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father from which he now reigns and will return to to set up his kingdom. It is only in the name of that one that you can enter into his physical kingdom. Beloved, the... um, The world desperately is looking for this kingdom. Desperately looking for this kingdom. The politicians promise it all the time. Just give me a little more tax money and we'll get there. Okay? It ain't coming. Not through them. Only when Jesus returns. Only when Jesus puts down the rebellion of this world system. And is established on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem as all of the Old Testament prophets attest to, it is only then that we will be granted the relief that our hearts so desperately desire. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, a proper understanding of Messiah's kingdom is so important that you, by your Spirit, inspired Matthew to pen this gospel so that his readers, both as contemporaries and for us 2,000 years removed, could have a, a correct understanding of, of what it is you're doing, the program of God through the ages, as it were. Our Father, I pray that you would help us to be good students of the Word of God. Jesus directed John the Baptist right back into the prophets. And he would do the same for us. May you humble our hearts and may you motivate us for a serious study of the Word of God. Have you not heard, have you not read, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Jesus is the one, he is the Messiah, and that is the good news, beloved. Please stand. We have one last song to sing before we send you guys off. Um, It's one of classic hymns of the faith, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. And we have a new chorus for it that goes with our theme of Jesus as Messiah. And the chorus says, his name is Jesus, risen lamb for sinners slain. His name is Jesus, and all creation sing the praise of Jesus' name. We're going to go ahead and start off with the chorus so we could learn it, then we'll go through the whole song together.